0: So welcome back to this week's episode in the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're, we're always excited to have you guys along for the ride and also making a commitment to your learning. We hope that your week is going well, we're, we're, um, but we are your hosts. I'm Yvonne Brandenburg, and I'm joined by the um, amazing Jordan Porter. Ooh. I feel so fancy now. (laughs) So I was going to call you Madam Secretary Jordan Porter. Yes, Madam President. (laughs) Oh, we're so nerdy. We are totally nerdy. Um, In (laughs) case you have no clue what the heck the two of us are talking about, we are, I don't know, I kind of did a happy dance. I don't know about you, but um, we got emails today that we won, like, the elections for our academy.
1: (laughs) Yay! Which is the AIMVT, which is the Academy of Internal Medicine for Veterinary Technicians. (laughs) It's where we got our VTS.
0: Yeah, so it's very exciting. So Jordan's going to be the secretary for the next three years. So this is a three-year commitment, and I'm president elect for this year, which means I get to learn how to be president this year, and then next year I'll officially be the president. Yes. and then the year after that, I get to be the past president. So these are both three-year commitments, <laughs> which w- which means we're
1: committed to going to ACVIM for the next three years as well.
0: Yes, which is actually super exciting because Jordan and I are already we're planning for this summer. Oh, I'm so excited! I know it's going to be Baltimore, by the way. ACVIM is the, or it's, it's actually the ACVIM Forum. Mm-hmm. It is the internal medicine for veterinary professionals, uh, conference. And that is, that's where every year, um, our academy hosts the, or not, well, it hosts the, um, general membership meeting as well as like the executive board meeting. It's also (laughs) where the test is. (laughs) Yeah. like if you ever try to join the
1: academy, it's going to be like one of the most stressful days yeah everybody's so supportive though too because like if you run into board members everybody's like how'd you do and like everybody yeah it's great
0: yeah i totally agree with you the the people in our academy are pretty amazing
1: yeah and now we get to be one of those people people.
0: (laughs) but i mean honestly it's gonna be really cool and i love going to the forum anyways because you get to see everyone and uh jordan and i are we're planning things yes plus it's kind of like where we met It is where we met in person. It's the only time Jordan and I have seen each other actually. So we're we're changing this soon though, because in a month I'm flying to see you, which is really cool. And then we'll I'm sure we'll record some podcasts in person. And we'll have to do some other really cool stuff. But in June this year in Baltimore, we have plans. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, anyways, we are excited to become, you know, kind of more more involved with our Academy because we want to make sure we elevate our profession. That's, that's the goal of the podcast and and everything we're doing. So becoming part of the Academy is going to be, or excuse me, the executive board is going to be super cool. Yeah.
1: That's going to be pretty amazing. So,
0: but um, along those lines of some kind of amazing things, we have a couple of uh, shout outs. Yeah, these over. are these are good ones. Yeah, holy. Not that million. the others weren't, but I mean, like, these ones this, kind of hit me in the gut. I was like, <laughs> "We're we're doing a good job, Jordan."
1: Well, it's just making us realize that, like, you remember, like, when we first started talking about this, like, our goal to actually just get people to learn more and try like new techniques and stuff. Like, yeah, we're, we're doing that. It's great. So, anyway,
0: yeah, we're getting we're getting information out there, which is cool.
1: So Amanda Marie said, I absolutely love this podcast. I listen to it every morning, sometimes repeating the episode as I drive to work at a GP. This is my first year interning as a vet tech, and I'm just thrilled that I can learn and review a lot while on the road or even relaxing at home. Thank you. So, right? Well,
0: like First of all, I can't believe you're listening to us to relax and you're repeating right? us. <laughs> oh, God. I hope we're, we're not driving you crazy too much with our weird rants, but thank you for, you know, learning with us. And and I'm, I agree with Jordan because I think Jordan, you responded to this one. I'm so glad that it's helping you, you know, as your first year. Yeah. Um, right. Learning and thinking about it a little bit differently than you did in school, which yeah, it's yeah. Always good to do that, which is great. So we, we definitely appreciate
1: you listening to us. And I mean, I think we're funny, so I, you should, there should
0: be some enjoyment. <laughs> I, mean, I make fun of myself a lot, so yeah, yeah. I've I'll caught go. myself laughing at us while we while I edit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think people think I'm crazy sometimes because I do listen to it in the car on the in commute, and sometimes I just really laugh because I also know some of the stuff we cut out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah. Like, hee. <laughs> Yes, exactly. This one's really cool because this one is on Apple Podcasts. Yes. And I believe it's from Canada, I believe. Canada. Yeah. So Gemma Jane, by the way. Thank you, Gemma Jane. Um, Holy moly. Okay. So this one's, this one's cool. That She says, what every technician needs. Hi, everyone. You need to be listening to this podcast, whether you're in a specialty practice or in a general practice. These lectures are deeply informative, yet clear and understandable. I'm currently in the process of applying for my VTS in small animal internal medicine. (laughs) And these podcasts are invaluable in explaining complex concepts. I would highly recommend to anyone who wants to broaden their knowledge of these diseases. I've already listened to all the available episodes. Please keep making more of these gems. I know, right? Oh gosh, it makes me feel so good. Can I just like? I, are we allowed to like just tattoo that whole thing on us somewhere? Oh, that's a little extreme. I was, <laughs>
1: <I laughs> was going to say snippet let's,
0: of that and just put it somewhere. Well, I, just, I was
1: going to say print it out and frame it, and I can hang it above my microphone. <gasps>
0: Oh yeah, we could totally do that. I guess that's less crazy than just tattooing oh. all those words on us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: oh, cool. Are those lyrics on your ribs? Oh no, it's just a no, review that I got. <laughs> it's just a review
0: on, on Apple Podcast. Uh, yeah, don't do that. But yeah. thank you, Gemma Jane. That, dude, when we read that, I, I know I did like a little jig. I was like, holy yeah.
1: crap, it's amazing. I reread um, it like a couple times because I was like, oh my
0: God. Yeah. (laughs) Cause we're dorks. Hashtag I'm a nerd. Yes. But thank you guys, uh, your reviews, honestly, but honestly, it, it does really help us tremendously on Apple podcasts to get more people to see the podcast. So the number of reviews as well as like actual reviews on there helps Apple know (laughs) who to show it to. And Rank and stuff like that, so it does help us get the word out for the the podcast and and we are it's great because every week we do get more people listening, which is awesome. Um, mm-hmm. And word of mouth is huge, so if you know anybody who might want to listen to a couple of internal medicine nerds talk about all things nerdy, and I am mm-hmm. definitely send them our way. Uh, we we love um, <laughs> when people join us on this internal medicine. If Crusade. you want to hear
1: us talk about obtaining client histories.
0: Right? <laughs> share this. <laughs> we don't have to talk about that this episode. No. Oh, you get an episode oh. free of histories.
1: But we will talk about client communication. <laughs> Definitely client <laughs> communication. Yeah. At the
0: end. <laughs> so to kind of go, yeah, I was going to say, to go forward. Um, we are, this is part two of the IBD podcasts. Um, so we, we realized that this was such a broad subject. So this is part two. This is the second half. This is going to be treating, um, inflammatory bowel disease. So we, we talked about history and diagnostics last week and and we're going to talk about treatments this week. So, um, anything else we need to take care of before we (laughs) dive on into our episode? No. All right, here we go. So if you remember inflammatory bowel disease, most of the times when we're treating these patients, it's outpatient care. If they are inpatient care, this is if they're dehydrated. And so that's usually just straightforward hospitalization for GI stuff. But, mm-hmm. but outpatient care, this is going to be where the majority of our time is spent with these kids because this is not something that is cured overnight this is long term and so we we kind of you know we have to talk to clients and tell them kind of what to expect so the when we're talking guts so um you know the stomach the intestines colon we are going to talk about mild cases and then kind of severe cases mm-hmm. so we have our mild cases that are going to respond to diet and i think we talked about diet trials yeah, so diet trials. We talked about it in the episode. Fourteen, and it was episode fourteen, episode fourteen. So we talked about it um, because this is this is gonna be. I'm gonna say most of them need a diet trial.
1: Yeah, because if you kind of revert back to that episode, we discussed about how the majority of these like IBD patients that we try on a food trial actually do respond in a positive way, and that tends to be the only like treatment they need.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and it depends on what, what is causing the inflammation. Um, a lot of times these are, it is an immune. They do think there's part of like autoimmune to these. So you need to control the inflammation. If it's a food sensitivity, right. Get the inflammation out with that. Then we're going to have to deal with the the gut bacteria. So diet trial, switching to a diet and then putting them on an antibacterial. So the most common one is metronidazole. I think everybody everybody knows the metronidazole. It's a broad spectrum antibiotic and this is going to be the one that you get prescribed probably I would say most general practitioners are Mm -hmm. doing metronidazole for diarrhea. And gut disease. The nice thing about metronidazole, it does have some anti-inflammatory properties as well. To it, it'll get giardia. If for some reason they do have giardia, they can be on this, and we'll do this a long course of metronidazole compared to you know your your standard treatment. But the thing about metronidazole, you don't want to be on it forever. Mm-hmm. So we usually end up switching.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those things, though, too, like metronidazole toxicity is a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do need to ensure clients know what they're giving and how much, how frequent. So,
0: yeah. And I actually, we had, we had a patient that had neurologic issues. Yeah. For metronidazole. It's not super common, but we've definitely seen it.
1: I think I've seen one my entire, like
0: 12 years. Yeah. I think, I think I've only seen one. Yeah. So. Yeah. but it's out there, and so that's that's something too. To when you're going over home cares with your clients, is to discuss the complications and potential side effects. Like no drug is a hundred percent safe, so we just need to to be aware of that. Most of the time I think most of the times after metronidazole, like if that's working mm-hmm. and we need to be on an antibiotic long term, most of my vets will switch over to tylosin. Yeah, that's what we do too. Okay, yeah. Um, so tylosin. It comes in a powder. You can get it compounded into capsules. Mm -hmm. And it's usually a small amount. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like, I think when I gave it to my cat, I think it was like an eighth of a teaspoon or something like that, which is like the teeny tiniest amount. But yeah, like Jordan was saying, it it can taste pretty bad. So So don't give it to a cat that's picky already. And then get their food
1: and they hate you. So that's where I'll like recommend to clients So it makes it with something like this goes for even like probiotics. Some pets won't eat their food with like probiotics or tylosin like on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, usually these are the pets that were like, no, seriously, you need to eat. I just had this conversation today with a client that they said something about splitting up the probiotic and doing half in the morning, half at night. And I was like, we'll try it in like some baby food or some tuna. I know some people who mixed it in with like tuna juice in a mm-hmm. syringe and squirted it in the mouth. Um, but do it with something other than their normal diet, so that way we don't deter them from eating.
0: Yeah, because that food aversion, that that can kind of that can screw up a a pet for a while. Yeah, right? and it's it's like us. Like if we have um, a bad experience with food, like food poisoning, right? I think that's the biggest one that people think of with food aversion. Is you feel. You feel grossed out, or it tasted funny, or whatever it is, and now you associate that food with whatever's issue Making you, you had. Yeah, yeah, and and so then all of a sudden now they're not going to want to eat that. So it's it's really important, especially I feel like with cats. I feel mm-hmm. like cats are more predisposed to like food aversion than dogs. We want to make sure that we're not sabotaging cat clients. <laughs> best with like bottom line. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> like- ah, cats. And they're picky about tastes. And then in, I think it was Kirk's uh, current veterinary therapy, which is what I used quite a bit for this, for the notes for this one, they talked about um, oxytetracycline, which I don't know if I've ever prescribed it. Mm-mm. Not I can't think of it off the top of my head. And then the other one is um, trimethoprim sulfa, which... I've prescribed but I don't know if I've prescribed it specifically for IBD. I yeah. feel like it's usually metronidazole and tylosin. Yeah, and then if that doesn't work we'll move into
1: immunosuppression mm-hmm. drugs. Yeah. Cuz usually like if the antibiotics don't work that indicates that we might have a more severe inflammatory bowel disease than what we're thinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and the more severe you're going to require immune suppression. And sometimes you're doing both of these concurrently, right? You've Mm -hmm. got some antibacterials as well as immune suppression because the antibacterials in theory are going to kill more (laughs) bad gut bacteria than good gut bacteria. But it, you know, just because we've got the bacterial load down doesn't mean that we don't also need to suppress the immune system from attacking the guts cells Yeah. So we use
1: prednisone or prednisolone, mostly prednisolone more often. And as we all know, I mean, like most pets that we see are on prednisolone, but uh, it's because most of them have immune diseases. And so that has the anti-inflammatory property as well as immunosuppression. So their body's not Mm -hmm. angry at the stuff that's coming through their guts.
0: Yeah, and and the thing to remember about this is like these are immune suppressing doses, so this is going to be much higher than you know you've got a hot spot and you're itching and we're going to put you on a course course of pred yes. for five days, right? This is going to be much higher dosing, um, and longer exactly. And we usually tell people, well, number one, don't <laughs> yes. cold turkey, always taper <laughs> pred. <laughs> always taper. Cause we don't want to have them, you know, all of a sudden having like an Addisonian crisis because we were giving them steroids and now their body mm-hmm. has none. Right. So that's why we do a taper. The other part of that too is my doctors. So we usually do prednisone mm. for dogs most of the times. And then prednisolone, we almost always yeah. will use for cats, um, because cats tend to not be able to metabolize the prednisone as easily into prednisolone. So prednisone usually transforms in the body into prednisolone. So a lot of times we just do prednisolone for more mm. cats because they just don't metabolize the prednisone as easily and yeah. efficiently. Yeah. And then
1: we'll also use like budesonide. So depending on the severity of the symptoms that we're seeing, we'll a lot of times we'll start off with prednisolone. And then as we taper down, Mm -hmm. we'll kind of come to that last dose of like once a day and then switch to budesonide, something that's just a little bit more mild. They tend to have less systemic side effects from budesonide than they do with prednisolone because I'm Mm -hmm. 100% sure we've talked about the side effects of prednisolone where you you worry about diabetes, (laughs) Cushing's disease, all the things that you can cause from being on that. So when we switch to budesonide, we're reducing those risks of causing that even more. Now it's still a potential. I've seen one dog become cushionoid and one cat become diabetic on Budesonide. One of each, no more. And I mean, heck, I've been in internal medicine for five years now, so it's a pretty good run.
0: (laughs) Knock on wood. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about budesonide is it doesn't absorb Mm -hmm. systemically. And so you're, you tend to get less of those side effects, but like you said, some of them will definitely Mm -hmm. absorb it. And all of a sudden you're, you're have well, not all of a sudden you're still continuing to have those those pred mm-hmm. effects, right? But most of the times it's just locally acting and helps reduce the inflammation and doesn't get absorbed yeah, and exactly. everywhere else. So um, we usually will switch, especially mm-hmm. our big dogs, because big dogs tend to get so pretty that we switch them to BS9 us usually fairly quickly. Yeah, I think we switch within
1: a week or two if we can,
0: if they're responding yeah. well. And then, yeah, and it all depends on how they're responding. Yeah.
1: Sure. And then we'll kind of move into cyclosporin. We don't do cyclosporin as often luckily because to me that's one of those like we already know that cyclosporin upsets the gut, but however it is an immunosuppressive drug, so it will in turn like help, but it's just one of those medications that's kind of known to cause nausea.
0: It can, yeah. So um I, I don't know have we talked about atopica versus cyclosporin yet? I don't think so. Because okay.
1: we're hardcore atopic hard- or atopica
0: in oh, our good. practice? Same here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So atopica is the brand that we typically go with, um, for cyclosporin, And, um, the reason for that is, and the reason I know this much about the stupid drug is because my dog was on mm-hmm. it and I had to figure out which one I wanted to do. There's, there's like, there's a couple different brands. So there's the, the just generic cyclosporin. Yeah. There's Neural, yeah, I think is what it's called. Neural. And then there's atopica brand. The the way that atopica is made, it's an emulsification, so it tends to absorb better Mm -hmm. or be absorbed better by animals. There are studies that show the blood level of the drug, so the bioavailability of cyclosporin in atopica is higher than neural or the generic cyclosporin. Now what that means is, in theory, you need less of the drug given to have more of the effect in the body. And we'll talk about this definitely in our immune Episodes, which we're trying to figure out when we're doing this, but it's probably soon. And so you can measure the blood levels of atopica too to see how much is in their system. Mm -hmm. You know, do we have room to move up? Do we need to, you know, go down? Do we have suppression? So most of the times we're saying atopica brand only. And the and the big thing to remember about this when we're filling prescriptions or we're you know faxing authorizations or we're talking to pharmacies on the phone is. If your doctor is a stickler for mm-hmm. it, you need to say Atopica brand only. Yes, because otherwise the pharmacy may switch to generic yep. or switch to one of the other brands Especially due to cost. Because you don't say brand only. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, and can I just point out that pretty much every person who works in internal medicine pronounces it Atopica, but when I was in general practice, it was Atopica because it's a for Atopic because derma- it's <laughs> Atopic dermatitis, <laughs> yes. huh? So it was like a hard change that's for me so when I went into when I went into specialty because I was like, you mean atopica? And they're like, no, atopica. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's atopica. But now I now I say atopica. It's just that's what it is. Interesting.
0: <laughs> we should find out.
1: Let's from, do a survey.
0: Uh, well, I was gonna say we can we talk to the manufacturer of the drug and just be like, How do you pronounce your freaking drug name? But yeah, that's true. It's probably atopica. Yeah. I'm pretty certain it's probably atopica. No, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dope. god. got it. <laughs> just point that yeah. out. <laughs> no, it's totally cool. And then this is something, and again, you're going to need to check with your, your vet on this. So it does cause GI upset is one of the side effects that is listed mm-hmm. on the box. Now, again, check with your doctor. Do not just do this <laughs> willy nilly, but there have, so my doctor says that, so ideally it's given on an empty stomach yep. and you do it the same way every time. Yep. If, if they can't tolerate that, give them food and, and take, give it with food, but do it consistently, whichever way you're doing one way or the other consistently every single time. If they're still having issues with that, you can put the capsule in the freezer. Yep, that's what we do all the time for half an hour to an hour beforehand. My doctor just recently said, you can store it in the freezer for a couple of weeks. Yeah, we, and I was like, my, my mind was blown by oh, that. Oh, we store
1: ours in there. Well, I mean like, oh, when we you? have patients
0: in the hospital, we'll prescribe a box and for the
1: length of their stay in the hospital, we'll keep their capsules in the freezer. There must've been a recent study on it then. I don't know. I feel like that's the way we've because always I done it. Because I feel
0: like, I was gonna say, because a couple of years ago, well, when my dog was on it, they were like, don't store it in the freezer, but you can put it in the freezer for about an hour. Oh. And the reason for that is in theory, right? If it's frozen, it doesn't dissolve in the stomach. It dissolves in the guts. Mm -hmm. So it causes less of that GI upset. So again, double check with your doctor before telling your clients to go ahead and freeze it. But sometimes that can help kind of minimize um, side effects that that pets are seeing. So yeah, it's
1: soapbox. <laughs> <Done>. <laughs> and then to kind of quickly run through the rest of the options for our, our immunosuppressive drugs, which we sometimes use chlorambucil when all the others previously mentioned don't work. Uh, sulfasalazine, azathioprine, cyclophosphamide and five amino salisate, salis- salis- salicylate salicylate Salicylate.
0: obviously Jordan and I do not use this drug but it was mentioned so we're like okay yeah I don't I I wonder what the brand is and then we'll probably be like oh that yeah probably (laughs) it's
1: like when I learned like
0: (laughs) when I was writing my case logs I was like
1: Sammy Sammy and then I was like oh (laughs) Denimarin. like
0: (laughs) but I would write out the
1: like super long name
0: for denimarin. So god uh and then god, it like so shortens it into longer. Sammy and yeah anyway we use um we use uh, chlorambicil with cats mm-hmm. more often than um cyclosporine, uh, especially if you have a patient that you know, maybe the owners decided they don't want to do GI biopsies mm-hmm. and you're concerned that it is lymphoma, but you don't have proof. You can use the chlorine because chlorine bacil is going to treat both IBD as well as lymphoma. Yeah. So we, we definitely have some of those nations, which
1: while so. those patients are on chlorine bacil, a CBC should be checked. I think we
0: do every like six to eight weeks. Once they're yeah, like stable, we'll do we, it
1: like I was gonna weekly say. for a
0: little while. <laughs> Yep. And then we do once a week for a couple of weeks. And then once we notice trend wise, yeah. we're good.
1: And that's, we'll and that's just to check months. for bone marrow suppression because it is kind of like, a, it is a chemotherapeutic drug um, that mm-hmm. can suppress bone marrow. So mm-hmm. that's the same with I, azathioprine. Um, but moving on, PLE <laughs> <laughs> protein losing enteropathy. We kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, and sometimes if a patient is, is exhibiting this, they can require low dose aspirin to prevent thrombus. So patients with PLE are more susceptible to throwing clots. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of our patients will start off on like aspirin, low
0: dose aspirin, or something, or or clopidogrel. Yeah, yeah. clopidogrel, which is also Plavix. Yes, if you remember the commercials, that's how I knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh,
1: Plavix. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the majority of ours are on clopidogrel versus aspirin, yeah. but we'll we try to taper them off if we can just to reduce the amount of meds that people have to give. But that usually comes after like a year of being stable.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. We're like, okay, we can try it now. Yeah. 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 Because you've got, I mean, if you've got that much inflammation and like PLE is a severe, severe form of IBD, Mm -hmm. right? Um, so they're they're losing proteins in their guts. They're usually their albumin's low. They just have all these inflammatories running rampant in their body. And so they're just more likely to throw clots. So, so that's why, you know, we do some sort of an anti-clotting agent, whether that's low dose aspirin or clopidogrel, just to help prevent that because you never want things to be going really well. And then all of a sudden right. they throw a clot oh, that's the and, worst. and there's like nothing you can really do. I know. And that's, yeah, that's tough.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, we move into the prebiotics and probiotics, which a lot of the diets now, like geared towards GI disease, have like kind of built in prebiotics and probiotics.
0: Which is awesome. Yeah. It's great. I think
1: the most common probiotics we use are, I'm going to name drop here. So VisBiome is great, Mm -hmm. store in their refrigerator, but I think it has like 10 billion, like... Microbes or something—I don't know—something crazy. It's, it's like the, it's highest. the highest,
0: yeah. And then, and I think that just came out this last year. Yeah. Right? Well, the, they have the, the veterinary, veterinary specific one. Yeah. We've, we we yeah. use human before that. It's
1: it is yeah, expensive, same. so a lot of clients like don't really want to go for it right off the bat. So we use yeah. Proviable Forte capsules. It works yep. a little bit better than the Proviable DC now. Um, then, of course, we have Proviable DC as well, and those are mm-hmm. kind of what we
0: mostly use. Do you have any others that you? Biome, um Proviable. I think those are our go-tos. We don't do a lot of Fortaflora mm-hmm. because, well, for these cases specifically, just because it. I think what is it? Beef based. Yes. Yeah. And so a lot of our patients were limiting their protein, so unfortunately, we can't do Fortaflora. But like, you're straightforward. Just I need a probiotic. It's fine. We just typically don't because all of ours are usually allergic to something. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, no, I think, I think VisBiome and Proviable are really the big ones that we're, we're talking about now. I know there's a new one that we just got in our clinic and and I'm sorry, I don't know the name.
1: Maybe. Because that's what we're getting. But the weird thing about Mysequin. Is that
0: a syringe?
1: No, but Proviable
0: comes in a syringe. No, we have that as well, but we have one that's just a syringe and I honestly, I don't know the name of it. It's like really new within the last month. I think we got it. Interesting. And yeah, then
1: I have to look it up. Of course, if we're really like hard up for some probiotics or prebiotics and like just <laughs> good gut bacteria, we'll do fecal transplants mm-hmm. yes. with the lid on. With the <laughs> lid.
0: And if you don't remember what fecal transplants are, because I think we talked about it in the, in the first GI episode. We talked about
1: it a little bit there, but it's in the diarrhea episode as well.
0: Oh, right. The diarrhea. <laughs> This is way back when. Yeah. Um, basically what we're doing is we're taking fecal matter from, a healthy, from a healthy dog that has not been on medications or antibiotics or any issues. We test them to make sure they're not positive for anything. And then we take that, that fecal material, mix it with a little bit of water, blenderize it, and then we give it to a patient whose gut biome is not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, in theory, helps to, like, repopulate their guts with bacteria that are helpful and beneficial to kind of minimize the amount of bad, bad gut bacteria. Exactly. Which is a fun procedure. I guess it depends on your definition of fun. Mm-hmm. The poop soup. Mm, I could go without it. <laughs> yeah. Our nutrition peeps are going to be super excited. Yeah. I was going to say, IBD, you can't. You can't not talk about nutrition. Yeah. It's all about the gut. Exactly.
1: Right? And I, dude, I studied nutrition so hard when I was doing my VTS stuff. And I
0: definitely studied it more than I thought I was going to. Yeah. But I didn't study it so hard. I just, I thought I was going to miss
1: some, I mean, there was a lot of things that I like overly studied because I thought I was mm. going to miss something, but yeah. So we've already talked a bit about the single source proteins that we were going to recommend for our food trials. Mm. We want those to be highly digestible. Um, again, kind of revert back to episode 14 when we discuss that, because we, we do go into pretty good details about what single source proteins, what proteins we're looking for exactly to try to start. But long story short, you're going to look for those proteins that a pets never had before, or at least attempt to look for those mm-hmm. proteins that a pet's never had before.
0: That's always fun, especially if they get a ton of treats and different and food changes all the time.
1: Yeah, see again that would be difficult in my house cuz my dogs have probably eaten everything except for kangaroo. Mm. Cuz I'm they they probably had alligator cuz we've brought that home before. <laughs> Gator
0: bites. <laughs> I live in the like, south. <laughs> I know I was like definitely don't have that here. <laughs>
1: and then um Water, of course, is like the most important nutrient just because we're really going to be concerned for some of these patients to become dehydrated pretty quickly depending on their symptoms. So if if they're having Mm -hmm. extreme diarrhea, like especially that watery explosive diarrhea, if they're vomiting a lot, and then of course not eating or not wanting to drink because they're just feeling crappy. Um, So so water is something to try to be diligent on making sure our patients are getting,
0: whether that be ice Mm -hmm. cubes or adding water to their diet specifically Mm -hmm. like their dry fountains. Yeah. Yeah. The other big thing too is electrolytes because vomiting and diarrhea causes electrolyte loss. Um, so we want to make sure that we're, we're getting them enough electrolytes so they don't have issues with that. So the food sources are going to be pretty good for that. The other thing too, um, that kind of goes with highly digestible is making sure that the food that we have is energy dense. Mm -hmm. So basically what that means is you don't want a bunch of fillers because we want to make sure that the guts don't have to work as hard. So we don't have a lot of distension of the, the um, intestinal loops because more distension causes more secretion and then it just makes it difficult. So energy dense, so small amounts of food, but that is better bioavailability for the body to absorb um, and just making it easier on the guts that are already problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, just making it easier for them. And, and that goes
1: along for the protein as well. Mm-hmm. So that kind of falls yeah. under that as well, just because you want
0: that high bioavailability. That's yeah. preferred. And if you guys remember, I, I, I don't know if you learned this in school, but like egg is yes. 100% bioavailability. Yes. So eggs, a great source for that. It's just not all of our pets can have it, but just remember that part of it. Um, we talked about. Kind of talked about fiber, um, and we're talking about prebiotics. So um, we want to make sure that the we have fiber in there that is going to be good. Ba- gut bacteria is going to want to have that fiber. It's because it's food, and it also helps normalize the water balance in the guts. So both for dehydration or overhydration, it kind of the fiber helps balance that, mm-hmm. and it helps normalize your peristaltic waves. So. If you have a hypermodal pet or a hypomodal like gut, this, the, the fiber helps kind of smooth it out. So it's great for both ends, both extreme ends of movement in the guts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then digestibility,
1: we do prefer like a higher digestibility because this can lead to a reduction in osmotic diarrhea, which is that fat and carbohydrate malabsorption. And then it can also reduce gas, which who doesn't want that? And well, yeah, especially,
0: <laughs> like. especially for your patient you discussed last week, I know. <laughs> I, and I, it was funny because I talked to my doctor about it. I was like, it's a carb malabsorption. And, and I was like, oh, the carbohydrates are doing it, which is kind of crazy in my head. Cause I always thought it was protein. Apparently it's also carbs. Yeah. And I mean, I kind of always assumed it was fat too, but Yeah. Anyway.
1: So with these higher digestibility diets, smaller amounts of intact proteins, what this means is kind of like we talked about in the food trial episode where you have that smaller, like hydrolyzed protein that is just- The molecule smaller. Yeah, exactly. So the
0: gut doesn't get, the antigen load doesn't get kind of triggered. Yeah, exactly. So smaller antigen load because it's the smaller intact protein. So the body doesn't respond to it as much, which is, which is really mm-hmm. good. So increased digestibility. So it's broken down more. Mm-hmm. So the the body can actually use it. More. Yeah, and then we do
1: we do a lot of vitamins in our IBD oh patients. God. Yes, I'm pretty sure all of them get a vitamin check. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we know that vitamin B12 is cobalamin and we know that when there's inflammation in the ileum of the small bowel, that cobalamin's not absorbed as well. So we do need to mm-hmm. tend to supplement that m- more frequently. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times so the the recommendation changed on this. It used to be recommending injections because they thought because the gut wasn't absorbing B12 that giving an oral supplement of B12 wouldn't be effective, but that has changed and now it does show that oral supplementation is.
0: Yeah. Effective. And I think there was a, there was a study done by Tamu that they were, cause they were measuring the B12 levels. And so basically what they do is they say, if you're going to do the oral supplementation, you're doing it daily for 12 weeks. And then you recheck to see what the cobalamin Mm -hmm. level is about a week after finishing that 12 week course. And I, my doctor recommends cobalaquin Mm -hmm. most of the times instead of just like a human vitamin B Mm -hmm. 12. And then we'll put a link for the TAMU dosing and stuff like that. But usually, you know, it's like 250 micrograms for cats and then somewhere between 250 and a thousand for dogs, just kind of depending on their size. And then kind of if, if you're doing the injection, the protocol is once a week for six weeks, then once a month after that. And then usually they say six weeks with a one month dose and then a test after the last dose. Our doctors just do it kind of indefinitely. So we do six weeks and then once a month after that. Um, we don't always recheck because vitamin B12 supplementation is pretty inexpensive. Yeah, exactly. Most of our patients retesting. just stay on
1: it because it's not going to hurt because yeah. it's, so it's a water soluble vitamin. You can't really overdo it. Yeah. So that's
0: one of those. Cause the body will just urinate it out if it doesn't need exactly. it, which is great. Exactly. Which I did not know that you could order it on Chewy now. Yes. So I was super excited. I found it on Chewy like a month or two ago. And it's great because it's a hundred mil bottle, which none of our patients are going to use a hundred mils, but it's less than six bucks for the bottle. Versus what we're doing now, which is prescribing it and they're paying like
1: $6 for a one
0: mil bottle. (laughs) Yeah. So um, we, cause we usually send it home. Mm -hmm. That's what we were doing. We didn't even have like a place where we did the one mil bottles. So you can do chewy.com. And then we just let our clients know that you have to discard it after a year because you don't want an open bottle for more than a year. Um, and so usually we do 250 micrograms for cats and then dogs. It's again, between 250 and a thousand, um, depending on actually 250 to 1500, excuse me, micrograms per dog. So,
1: and then we do supplement folate as well, occasionally. So if your folate levels are low again, so that's vitamin B nine, but we best know it as folate. And that is, Mm -hmm. um, kind of lost in the proximal small intestines. So if our folate levels are low, we will supplement that. we usually use over the counter tablets, folate tablets. I believe they come in 800. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And you just want to make sure that they don't have a bunch of like other stuff in them. Yeah. Um, But yeah. We have this like we brand. go to like the natural store to get yeah, We have
1: a spe- uh, specific brand that we recommend. And then yeah. our fat soluble vitamins is vitamin
0: K. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting because I don't think I've ever seen a vitamin K deficient IBD dog. I don't think so don't either. either. Yeah. No, we haven't. I mean, yeah. the only
1: time we ever use vitamin K is for coagulopathies. Like that's.
0: Yeah. But apparently they say that you can get coagulopathies just from IBD, which blows my mind, which I actually. guess makes sense. Cause if they're losing vitamin yeah. K. Yeah. Cause it's a fat soluble. So if you're not able to absorb it and the cool thing about it, they were saying that, um, once the fat reabsorption is reestablished, mm. you can actually stop supplementing it because it's, it recovers very fast, which I thought was kind of cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess it um, makes sense for our like extremely undernourished pets who just have no fat or muscle to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that makes sense. And then zinc, we consider supplementation if poor hair coat or dermatitis is noted. Uh, we we have it on the shelf. We
0: do it occasionally. We don't. <laughs> I I did not think of IBD at all with zinc malabsorption. I just think of the husky. Yeah, you know, did you learn that in school? Like the husky with the face that has no fur, and you're like, oh, zinc. No, that's so funny for some reason that's what I
1: learned. For some reason, when I think zinc and like poor hair coat and just kind of crappy skin, I think of like hepatocutaneous syndrome, which I'm sure that zinc mm. falls in there. And we're going to have someone requested a hepatocutaneous episode. So
0: we'll, we'll get there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then of course, our favorite part is client communication. I do enjoy talking to people about this, <laughs> <laughs> about most things actually. So yeah.
0: And we talked about a lot of the the communication that goes along with IBD. Mm -hmm. Um, Like in the diarrhea episode, we talked about quite a few things Mm -hmm. as well as the food sensitivity, right? So we talked about, it's not a quick fix, food elimination, Jordan's house would fail because she has so many kids and other dogs. Um, But it's, it's important for clients to know that this is a long-term long game. Yeah, It's not going to be an easy fix, but some of these patients do really, really well. So yeah. it's worth it. It's not
1: an easy fix, nor is it an easy diagnosis. <laughs> like, it's like, no, <laughs> it takes a lot of money to diagnose it. And then a lot of money, well, sometimes not a lot of money to fix it. It's a lot of money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause it's a, the problem is, is that it's a diagnostic diagnosis of IBD because you've ruled out every other possible. Disease. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I meant like treating it <laughs> like unless you have PLE, like the cost isn't like unbearable unless your dog's on atopica for it, but
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's usually it's the food. Most of the medications except for atopica is like pretty inexpensive. Yeah, the first month is probably the most expensive. And
1: then yeah. like once you get the hang of it. So, I mean, long-term goals are quality of life, obviously, because we know that we're not going to fix it. There is, well, you have stats that we'll get to, Um, mm-hmm. but it also... The quality of life depends on severity. If concurrent pancreatitis or pancreatic disease, which this goes along for every disease that we'll ever talk about, um, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> or hypocobalaminemia, which is low vitamin B12, which I don't agree with that statement, and or hypoalbuminemia, that leads to a poor outcome. I've, I agree with the pancreatic disease and the low albumin, but the low cobalamin we see that so often that I can't.
0: Yeah. I, 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 it was funny because they put that in there and I think it also is also dependent on the severity. Yeah. Like if you're low B12, you're low on albumins, pancreatic. I mean, so I think that's it's where the that calm kind effect. of fell into, but, but if your cobalamin level is normal, then you're going to have a better prognosis. Yeah. So I think, I think that's where that factoid came from. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I mean, I right. guess that makes sense because if you do have
1: low B12, then you're, guts aren't absorbing properly and it's, it's kind
0: Mm -hmm. of well known. Um, but yeah. And we, we were kind of, it was interesting. We talked about, you know, whether we would do these stats in this episode, but Kirk's current veterinary therapy, they, um, talked about prognosis for IBD patients. So about 26% go into full remission, which I was actually surprised. I figured it'd be a little bit higher than Mm -hmm. that. But I, I understand what they mean by that. Like, full remission is, like, absolutely no signs. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, I get
1: And that. I bet you that goes for, like, the ones who respond to just diet trial alone. Like, mm. you know, mm-hmm. because it's like once you do throw in all the other parts to it, you probably just don't have a better chance of going into remission. You're always going to require yeah. some sort of medication.
0: Yeah, that the the, end, like you look at it that way, that totally makes Mm -hmm. sense. Half of the patients that do go into remission will have intermittent symptoms, usually because they ate something that they weren't supposed to, um, or they just have a flare up for whatever reason that the immune system decides it wants to flare for. About 4% of IBD patients will be uncontrolled, Um, which those cases are very frustrating for owners Mm -hmm. because they're, they're trying everything and we just can't get them controlled. Mm -hmm. And then 13% were euthanized due to poor response to treatment. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a pet, you know, that, Every once in a while, has diarrhea. Mm-hmm. That's that's different. But some of these patients, you know, they're painful when they're eating, mm-hmm. or they're just constantly having vomiting and diarrhea. They're dehydrated and stuff like that. I mean, those are the ones that. Yeah. Or you know, they they're low proteins. Yeah. And they can't. They're, they're leaking everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. We have
1: we've had so. a couple where like they've come in so malnourished, like they're so thin mm-hmm. and like they're not hypoabuminemic yet. But like we try to kind of beat their body to the punch with like throwing all these meds at them and then they just keep sliding into that low albumin level and then we just can't It's so hard to bring those ones back when they're like clearly malnourished and like just are not absorbing properly.
0: Yeah. We actually had um, a patient, well, we had two, one that was a severe PLE that we ended up actually sending home injectable dex Yeah, we've done that too. Because they just could not absorb the PRED. Yeah. Because as soon as we switched them to tablets, she started doing worse again. Um, So sometimes their guts are so bad that they can't absorb the medications yeah. to make them feel better. Exactly. And you can't, sometimes you can't find the right combination of things for, for animals. Yeah. And so follow-ups kind of key. Like we don't follow
1: up on ultrasound a lot. We, we do recheck blood work occasionally if there was any like previous abnormalities, not necessarily like the B12 or anything, but it yeah. really depends on the symptoms on how well or how frequent we, we should be following up in person the majority of the time we're just doing phone calls to check in, see how diet trials are going, see how the response is going. We'll put in like reminders to call back if we know that we've tapered something a little bit and we'll try to call like two days later and just be like, so how's it going? Are you seeing any symptoms? Do you hear any gut sounds? Like, are they a little burpy? Are they drooling? Like things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. As I say, phone calls and you know, we do the, okay, how's it going? Is it, is it time for us to be able to (laughs) taper down another step? Um, so yeah, these, guys, it, it is a lot of communication.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we're talking to him at and, least once a month because we're tapering yeah, maybe one medication yeah. a month if things are going well.
0: And, and I was going to say we, we do like a once a year blood work just yeah. because, you know, we want to make sure nothing's changed if, if there's no abnormalities. Um, so we'll do our yearly kind of recheck Yeah, to keep, to keep things current. Yeah. So I think
1: our caution for this episode is that we know now that the risk for thromboembolism is a lot higher when our patients become PLE or protein losing enteropathy, those low ab human patients. Um, so that is something that we want to try to be aware of and not necessarily a conversation text should have with the client, but the doctors can kind of initiate the conversation and text can go in a little bit with what to look out for. How are you going to know if that happens, um, which mm-hmm. we'll definitely probably get into when we discuss yeah, hematology. I was saying.
0: <laughs> hematology and respiratory stuff. We'll, d- we'll definitely talk about like a thromboembolism and and yeah, and just clots in general. So yeah, <laughs> it's the tip of the week.
1: So our tip of the week this week, I think we're going to just kind of reiterate the TAMU or the te- the Texas A and gastrointestinal lab. Their website has a lot of really good information just about just Mm -hmm. GI disease and GI health and cabalamin. So I think I'll definitely put that link in the show notes and the correct link because they changed their website. So so (laughs) I'll put that. You can always Google it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I'll put the, I'll put the link in the show notes just to kind of just go over there, take a look, see what panels that we're talking about when we're saying we're running our GI panels. And that way you
0: can kind of get a good sense for what we're, what we're talking about. And now for the question of the week. So I think for this week, we are gonna kind of we're gonna throw it back to you guys and say, you know, if you guys are dealing with the IBD in your clinics, what is your doctor's protocol of choice? You know, what what drugs do they typically go for? You know, do they do they start with scope and then do medications or do they do diet trial? You know, so what what do they do and you know what what do you think you might be able to kind of bring? to the table and, and talk about with your doctor. Cause I like having conversations with my doctor and starting discussions and doing new things, which is kind of fun. What? So. <laughs> <I know. laughs> what? Hashtag I'm a nerd. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think that pretty well wraps up this. Well, our IBD series. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I think we really tried to cover all grounds. However, everybody have a great week keep listening, keep leaving us comments, reviews, questions. Um, We have been getting a lot more engagement on our podcast um, show notes page. People have been leaving us comments, asking questions and things like that. So that is also very wonderful just that people are becoming more engaged. So continue and then
0: let us know if you want us to say anything specific. Yeah, you can. uh, And you can definitely, you can always like, if you don't want to go on social media and Talk to everyone. You can always send us an email directly. Yep. Um, so podcast at internal medicine for vet techs.com. It'll get both to me and Jordan. That way, you know, we can we can definitely answer questions. Um, we try to we try to get to our emails as soon as we possibly can. I've got one I've got to respond to. Uh, and I think Jordan has yep. one she has to respond <laughs> to. Yeah. So we may do that in just a few minutes. But definitely, you know, let us know what you guys think and if there's anything specific you want going on and and remember, we have our tech treasure trove. So sign up for our newsletter and you can uh, get access to that. Yep.
1: Which that link will also be in the show notes just to how, like how to sign up. So please just take a look and then we will talk at you next week.
0: Woo-hoo! Have a great week, guys. Keep learning and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at vettex.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.